Happy Election Day. I know that some of you are brand new to this stuff, but you've been sitting around awkward conversations and uncomfortable questions for decades now, probably, that surround this season, like, did you vote today? Uh, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Uh, who did you vote for and why? Asking someone's personal habits, uh, asking about them has always felt a little intrusive to me, kind of like asking someone to tell you who they voted for. Last week, I read an interview done several years ago with the recently departed Eugene Peterson. The interviewer, I think, must have sensed this tension because she phrased a question to him this way. This may be audacious, but would you mind telling me what your spiritual disciplines are? I think she knew that pressing into those areas of our lives is pretty personal stuff. A few years ago, one of the girls in my life group had to interview someone who was healthy. Evidently, I fit the bill. And uh, we sat down together to talk about different facets of health. Um, it felt a little bit like my life had gotten put under a microscope, and I wasn't sure if I would stand up to the scrutiny. So she asked questions about my diet and about other lifestyle habits, and then we finally got around to the question that always makes me a little bit sheepish about answering. Why do you work out? I know the reasons that a lot of people have for working out to lose weight, uh, to better their heart health, lower cholesterol, gain muscle mass, all of that. And those are all really good reasons to work out. And they do play a role in my decision to work out regularly, but that wasn't what I told her because those aren't the primary reasons I have for working out. I had to be honest. So why do I work out? To eat cookies. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's the truth. I have a sweet tooth, and while I can probably work on curbing those cravings, I don't know that I'll ever be able to eliminate them completely, so I still eat brownies and chocolate chip cookies. Uh, but I know that they don't do anything for my overall weight or health, so I work out. I just need you guys to know where I'm coming from in my own pursuit of habits and how that shapes what I tell you today. If there was an incentive like uh, cookies for studying your Bible or a chocolate cake that waited at the end of every fast, I'd be all in. I don't always make the best decisions and my intentions aren't always pure. I've been walking on this earth for 40 years now and I've been following Jesus for a little over 30 of those years. And he has tenderly shown me where I have missed the point about habits in my own life reminding me that he is the focus of my habits. So before we get any further, I want to encourage you to meld the ideas of habits and disciplines together. I know that typically we separate those and we talk about habits um, as referring to physical things like diet, exercise, our use of time, and then we refer to disciplines for our spiritual life, like solitude, fasting, and prayer. But I don't think we should do that. I think we should put them together. Your physical life and your spiritual life can't be separated. I think we should be more integrated in our approach to those things. 
Today, I'm going to use habits and disciplines interchangeably because my own journey has shown me that they are a lot more connected than I want to admit that they are. So here's what I mean by habits and disciplines. A set of regular and routine practices that place us in a position to commune with God, experience his love, and be transformed for our good and God's glory. And maybe, just maybe, this refers to everything from how I use my time, to exercise, to fasting and prayer. When we talk about disciplines, we often wanna jump right into a discussion about how, because habits and disciplines require doing, and we want to know how to do them. I know from conversations with students over the years that the how is important because they have said to, said to me things like, I wish I was more self-disciplined. And I want to say to them, you know that's not how this works, right? Just wishing for it won't make it happen. But I feel that I must share with you right away, this isn't going to be a how-to sermon. So if you're looking for a series of quick fixes or 10 easy steps, this isn't it. We will make it to how, but only after we have tackled the why. The why helps us get our heads and hearts right. If you don't know why you're building habits or even why they exist, like my own approach to exercise, then the rest of the conversation doesn't lead to health and spiritual maturity. Instead, it leads to bondage and arrogance. Let me say that again. If you don't have the right why behind your disciplines, your life will be characterized by pride and imprisonment. Here's what I mean by the wrong why. If you think habits play into a conversation about salvation, you're wrong. And I know sometimes we actually slip into that thinking that my habits are connected to my salvation. These don't save you. Remember the simple truth of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But maybe this isn't you. Maybe you have squared away in your head that your habits aren't what saved you. Instead, you struggle with everything that happens the moment after salvation. Some of you act as if it is your habits that sanctify you. I know that in this place, specifically, it's easy to think that. I mean, you turn in assignments attached to various disciplines and habits, and you get graded on them. So it isn't long before you believe that what you do transforms you into the likeness of Christ. After all, you got an A on that assignment for essentials of spiritual formation. You mastered the assignment, so that means you did the transformation, right? Nothing could be more untrue. You don't practice disciplines to sanctify yourself. So both of those represent the wrong why. God justifies you, God sanctifies you, period. You can't add caveats to that, you can't qualify that. So if you're stuck in a pattern of belief that clings to what you do on a daily basis to earn God's favor, you have a misunderstanding of both grace and how habits and disciplines work for us. So here's why we practice habits. God loves us. 
I read scripture, I pray, I practice saying no to my desires, all because of God's great love for me. Don't ever reverse the order of those things. God doesn't love me because I do certain things. And here's what happens to me if I do things to get God's love. I become motivated by guilt, shame, and fear. These three things are crippling and they will kill any love I have for God. No, instead, I do things because he is the one who has loved me, redeemed me, and called me friend. His love motivates me. Guilt, shame, and fear don't have a place in this scenario because he took care of my guilt and shame a long time ago and his perfect love continues to drive out my fear. His great love propels me to practice habits that I normally wouldn't do if left to my own devices. The spiritual habits or practices that I engage in are nothing more than an attempt to align my life with his love, to live in that love. So remember how I define the idea of habits and disciplines, a set of regular and routine practices that place us in a position to commune with God, experience his love, and be transformed for our good and God's glory. When I embrace solitude and silence, I open myself up to hear God's voice. When I set aside daily time to read through scripture, I recenter my heart and my mind in the reality of God's presence in the world and that I do nothing that he is not a part of. God's love is always flowing toward me. And when I let him retrain my habits, I place myself directly in the path of that love. I become like the tree of life in Revelation that is watered by the river of life that comes straight from the throne of God. So I must always start with God and his love for me by planting myself firmly next to his river. As crucial as it is to talk about God's love for us first, we cannot neglect our love for him though. And it is right to talk about this second because the Apostle John reminds us that we love because he first loved us. God's amazing love ignites my own love for him. And then my love for him is demonstrated in how I follow him and how I do what he wants me to do. We all know that love is not a squishy romantic feeling, right? Loving God doesn't mean that we just sit around feeling warm fuzzies toward him. C.S. Lewis tells us in Mere Christianity that it is an act of the will. And the greatest commandment in scripture says it this way, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving God requires everything from us. It is all consuming. Our loving God is as active and dynamic as his love is for us. So loving God means practicing certain habits Remembering that I don't do them in order to get God's love, his love is already established. Now I simply have the opportunity to work out my love for him by including in my daily life certain movements and actions. But don't be deceived with all this love talk. Praying, fasting, saying no to my desires, even orienting my schedule so that I am not the center of my world, these are not easy things. These are pick up your cross daily kinds of things. 
My wayward nature means that I easily fall into wrong-headed thinking, that what I do brings me favor with God, and then the pull of sin means that both inside and outside of me are fighting the good things of God. So I constantly have to recenter myself in his love. When we decide to join with God in learning new habits, we must be ready to work. The Christian life is not for the faint of heart, but we're ready for this kind of work, aren't we? I mean, passages like fight the good fight of faith and faith without works is dead tell us that the Christian life is going to be anything but easy. Richard Foster has written a book called The Celebration of Disciplines, and I want to bring him into this conversation because I think his opening chapter has two really helpful things for us to remember when we talk about retraining habits. First, while the habits that we're talking about have many outward manifestations, they are primarily about inward changes. God is working on me. He is transforming my innermost being. And because of that inward change, I am moved to do certain things. It's cyclical. For example, I pray because of what God has already done inside me. And then when I pray, my love for God is increased because of the beauty of prayer. My habits transpire because of how God's spirit is changing me. It's when we take the outward or the visible action and turn it into requirements or displays of righteousness that we become arrogant and pharisaical and imprisoned to our own standards. Honestly, this is how you read news stories about a preacher who appears to be very holy and righteous because of his deeds, and then one day gets arrested for soliciting a prostitute. We cannot turn these into proofs of a changed life, nor can we use them to measure others and their walk with Jesus. Jesus himself said that it isn't what we do that makes us unclean, it's what's inside us and comes out that makes us unclean. So practicing certain habits is never about the habit itself. It's always been about the inward transformation of the heart. Second, Foster reminds us that using habits and disciplines as a way to curb or dominate sin will always fail. Our temptation when we have a sin habit is to tamp it down by practicing another spiritual habit in its place, hoping that our hard work and efforts will bring about the change that we desire. They won't. Ultimately, your sin habit isn't the problem. Your heart is. And until you plant yourself by the living water, you will continue to struggle with that sin habit. So here's what I mean by this. Say you struggle with pornography. Your initial instinct is to get an accountability partner, pray more, go on a media fast, maybe even set up apps on your computer to block you from certain sites. Those are all helpful things, but they won't take care of your problem because your problem isn't with pornography. Your problem is lust. Or maybe you struggle with a bitter and, and terrible angry tongue and it comes out in brutal tirades and caustic comments towards your friends and your family. You might try to work on this through breathing exercises, scripture memorization, maybe even a tally sheet 
that helps you keep track of outburst-free days. These things might be good, but they won't fix you. Too often, I think we've adapted the psychological theory of behavior modification and tried to apply it to the spiritual life. We think that if we just do certain things, that our hearts will be magically transformed. And so our sermons and our teaching become little more than do this, don't do that, and try harder. I think heaven must weep because we've taken the good news of Jesus and his grace, and we've turned it into a fairy tale with our behavior modification approach to sin. Trying harder won't fix you. The only thing that works is a concerted movement toward the Holy Spirit. Psalm 1 foreshadows the image in Revelation of the tree and says that the person who lives close to God and his word is like a tree planted by streams of living water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Our habits don't change us. Time spent rooted in God's love is what will change both your hearts and your actions. So plant yourself by the river of life. You can't manufacture heart change and you can't transform yourself simply through practicing a series of new habits. That reality is what prevented me from starting the sermon with how. Because when you start with how, you will easily miss out on the why. But if we start with why, it will inevitably lead us to how. So what does how look like? Let's start with the title of the sermon, Let God. Retraining our habits doesn't mean we do it on our own. We do it by submitting to God. We let him in to do the work. One of my favorite moments from the Chronicles of Narnia occurs in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. In this book, we meet a self-absorbed brat named Eustace. Eustace manages to accompany Lucy and Edmund on an adventure to Narnia, where he makes a general nuisance of himself and tries the patience and compassion of everyone on the Dawn Treader. They stop uh, during their journeys at an island. Eustace wanders off and finds a pile of gold in a cave. And one of the things that he decides he wants to take with him is a gold bracelet. So because of the bracelet's size, Eustace decides to put it on his arm and he's able to shove it all the way up his arm. And that's how he's gonna take it with him. But he falls asleep with the bracelet on. And when he awakens, he makes the terrible discovery that he's no longer a boy. He's turned into a dragon. The bracelet was a part of a hoard of dragon's gold and now Eustace is caught up in some kind of curse. The bracelet that fit easily and loosely when he was a boy is now painful and bites into his dragon flesh. Worse, Eustace can't communicate with Edmund or Lucy or anyone. His experience as a dragon is difficult and strange as he's forced to adapt to his new reality. One night, Eustace has an encounter with a very unique lion who seems to want to help Eustace become a boy again. The painful key to the process that the lion outlines for him is that Eustace must claw his dragon skin off before dipping himself in a magical pool of water. 
after doing this several times on his own without success, he submits himself to the lion's claws because the lion tells him, you must let me undress you. Eustace describes it this way to Edmund later on. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Eustace realizes that the painful wounding of the lion, who we all as readers know to be Aslan, is the only way to healing. Eustace then says, Aslan caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Retraining your habits must start with the work of God, not your own sheer willpower. It is painful to submit to his training, but it is the only effective way to learn new thinking and new practices. Let God do his work in you. But then the next part of the how comes from the person that we have let into do the work. The how will always lead us to who. And this person is the only being capable of effecting this kind of change. We know from Exodus that God identifies himself as I am. And then later on in Isaiah, we learn that he could also be called Emmanuel or God with us. So God is by very nature being and presence. He is with us. He is both the author and the recipient of your disciplines, but he's also with you as you do them. I don't think that we consider this when we talk about habits and disciplines. We tend to think of it this way. I'm going to practice the habit of daily scripture reading for God. Right. Because God needs you to read to him because God needs you to show him how good of a Christian you are with your daily reading habit, it would be better to construct the sentence this way. I'm going to practice the habit of daily scripture reading with God. With and for are prepositions. You knew that the English teacher would sneak in a lesson about words, <laughs> didn't you? Prepositions are tiny little words, but they pack a powerful punch and they can alter the meaning of a phrase drastically. When you do things for God, you turn wholesome habits into proofs of your supposed devotion to him, which sounds incredibly conceited. When you do things for God, God becomes a taskmaster who is always disappointed by your inability to stick with something and you become imprisoned to your own view of God. When you do things for God, you don't even have to love him it gives you just enough sense of entitlement that you feel like you can manipulate God into doing what you want. Doing things for God is not wrong, but it can lead to dangerous places like bondage and arrogance. Suddenly God becomes beholden to us for all that we have done for him. Here's what God has to say about doing things for him. In Isaiah 1:14, God tells Israel, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. He's saying to Israel, you are doing them for me, but you aren't walking with me. And in Amos 5.21, he says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies because they weren't doing them with God. 
God himself was the one who prescribed the feasts and the sacrifices and the gatherings, but something had become hollow and hypocritical about the way that Israel practiced these things. And it was rooted in a false picture of God. Sometimes the reason and the way we practice discipline says more about who we think God is than anything else. So don't implement new habits for God. You can't do anything to impress him or ingratiate yourself with him. He can't be manipulated and he sees through your facade. Instead, implement habits and disciplines with God. If God himself initiated the relationship with you, then he doesn't want you to treat him like a long distance lover or a silent partner. He's with you because his name is I am and Emmanuel. Even when you try to figure out how to express your love for him and grow in that love for him, he is with you and he wants to help you figure out how to do that. He's your father. And just like any good dad who does stuff with his kids, God wants to work with you. A recent event in my own family reminded me of this reality. Our son Josh is 16 years old. And when he started driving this summer, we gave him our 2000 Honda Accord. It's a great car. It's very old, has a lot of miles, but it still runs. It's showing its age, though, in spots. The shiny top coat and the paint have gotten rubbed off in a few places. So Josh asked if he could repaint those parts, and we started down the road of auto body work with him. My husband is an incredibly talented man, and he knows how to do a lot of different things, but even this was a new area for him. So Josh did a lot of research on his own, but when it came time to paint the car, we knew that we couldn't just send him off to do it by himself. So one Saturday, they went out together, got all of the supplies before heading to a friend's warehouse to do the work. My husband called late in the afternoon to give me an update on the progress, and I could tell it had been a long day by the tone of his voice. But here's what he said. Josh had no idea what he was doing when he started this process. Figures. <laughs> we're so wise when we're 16. Um, and I know that he wanted me to rescue him. So that's why I'm here, because that's what dads do. Dads rescue their kids. My husband didn't just rescue our son that afternoon. He worked with him on every single step of the process. He was with him because that's what dads do. You have a father who has not only rescued you, but who has been with you every single step of the way since then. Jesus used the image of a yoked team of oxen to show us that he bears our burdens. And I think that that image is helpful as well when we talk about habits, because in the same way that Jesus is walking with you, carrying your load, he is walking with you to help you learn better habits. I don't think he wants us or expects us to do this on our own. In fact, I think he's grieved to watch us stumble through the process, fighting him off in an attempt to prove ourselves to him like stubborn toddlers who exclaim over and over, I do it myself. Sometimes we experience God's presence and power like Eustace did when Aslan restored him to boyhood. It smarts, but we know that it is the only real way to be changed. David pictured Emmanuel this way in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. God's presence is relentless and bigger than anything else that we can manufacture on our own. But God is also pictured as the lamb by both scripture and C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis shows us this side of Aslan as well in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. After the children reach Aslan's country, they encounter a lamb who bids them to come and eat breakfast with him. And our own heads as readers are swimming with biblical references to Jesus as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world and the lamb who was slain. And even another breakfast that Jesus had with his disciples after his death, he met them on a shore to share a meal with them, to remind them of his love for them and their love for him. And he would later remind them that he would be with them to the very end of the age. God's heart has always been to be with his people. This lion lamb figure isn't just the stuff of children's books or thousands year old scripture. Today, this lion lamb roams the contours of your own life. He knows your every temptation. He knows your every failing. He is with you and he loves you. So what would possibly prevent you from letting him retrain your habits?